Hello. Hey. Welcome to Rosé and DNA. I'm Deanna. And I'm Renee. And we're two professionals working in the field of genetics. On this episode of Rosé and DNA, we are talking with Robin Aguilar, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Genome Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Robin is also impressively a fellow as part of the National Science Foundation's Graduate Research Fellowships Program. Robin's research primarily focuses on creating tools and technologies to image satellite DNA, something that they can certainly explain better than we can. As a first-generation queer, non-binary, and disabled scientist, a lot of their work focuses on providing support and connection for folks of marginalized identities in and outside of STEM. And somehow, in their free time, they are also an artist and a writer. We are so thankful that Robin has decided to join us on this podcast, and we cannot wait for you to hear what they have to say. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. (laughs) Awesome. Well, before we get started and dig into the the deep questions, uh, we always like to get started on a a light note and uh, really just dig into the the drinks that we're having today. So maybe Deanna, do you want to get us started? So I wanted to do something a little different today. Um, I still wanted to stick with a rosé, but I decided to go with a Cremant rosé from a Golden and Feast. Um, It was actually one of the rosé wines that Jamie Brown, our wine expert, had recommended um, on one of our last podcasts. Um, And it's pretty good. I'm really enjoying it so far. I guess I'll, I'll go next and we'll, we'll go to you, Robin. Um, so I am drinking a red blend. Um, it is, I, full disclosure, it is 10 a.m. here. So as I was saying before, uh, a, a red blend at uh, 10.25 a.m. is a little aggressive. But um, this is a 2016 from Paso Robles. It is a Mojave Rain, I think is the brand. Um, yes, Mojave Rain. Um, and based on the bottle, it's like a nice cherry and black raspberry flavors um and I'm, I'm really liking it so far it's I feel like this would actually be really good as a base for a sangria mm. um so mm. it, it's like very very fruity but still dry enough that I, I usually veer away from the the super fruity and like sweet stuff but this is a really nice balance um so I'm really looking forward to using it in a sangria someday Thank how about sounds- you Robin that sounds so good. Like I actually do have a pretty great sangria recipe. So Ooh. that is Ooh. very convenient that you mentioned that. Um, I will be emailing you after that for that. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. So right now I'm actually, it is uh, seven, about 7.30 where I am here. Um, and, and we are very just... grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, 7.30 a.m. So I figured I would just go with the mimosa. So this is um, actually just a local um Prosecco that I picked up and just some orange and mango juice. Um, Super simple. I actually thought about having um, a rosé cider from this local um, brewery, cidery in town called um, Schilling, which is like, it's super, super great. They have lots of cool stuff. Um, Awesome. And yeah, their rosé one is like, they, I think they had it as like one of their seasonal ones for a while, but I think people loved it so much that they just ended up keeping it, which I'm like, that is, that's great. Well, I guess, you know, just just launching into it, um, we were, as Renee said, just so excited to, to get the chance to talk to you. Um, but before we dive into what you're doing now, we'd love to hear more about what you were like 
as a kid? Um, what did your childhood look like? What did you love to do? Um, and then how did you get interested in genomics as a career path? Yeah, um, so those are really, really great questions. So I was when I was growing up, um, I grew up in South Central East LA. So um, mm-hmm. my area code, for those of you who are listening who would care, I am from the 323 area code, which is a super, super great neighborhood in LA. Um, lots of community and lots of folks who I like truly, truly miss growing up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, um, yeah, I grew up as um, the kid of two immigrants. So my dad is from Pueblos in, Me- in Mexico, um, and my mom is from Colombia. Um, so I grew up um, kind of in like a low socioeconomic status area um, as well. Like I, I think for me, I was super um, fortunate though to have such really wonderful communities in LA supporting me, supporting my family, supporting our cultural customs too. Um, so I never really felt alone I guess growing up with them and feeling like a lot of my own family's traditions from Mexico and Colombia were never really very far from me Mm. um I would say that I also grew up watching uh, my mom go through ESL classes when I was growing up so I would like go to like an after school program and she would be going to like her after school basically like her after work teaching classes so she would just be learning English, I'd be doing my own stuff. And then we'd head home on LA Metrolink. And it was just kind of cool to see her um, doing homework at the same time I was like, we'd sometimes like read each other's stuff as practice. I grew up um, with like English stopping my first language, it was Spanish. Um, So yeah, like I grew up in a really supportive environment, though. I loved doing art and swimming as a kid. Um, And art is still something that you know, it's stuck around with me today. I still swim when I get the chance, but it's just been super hard to find great areas to swim, especially (laughs) now during the pandemic. Um, But yeah, I was always, um, I didn't really get a hang of what science was or what it meant to be a scientist, really, I think until um, maybe even high school, because I was just interested in so many different areas. Like I loved writing, I loved doing art. um, I loved, you know, just hanging out, spending time with my friends reading comic books. My dad had some like really cool Marvel comic books that he got from Mexico. So they were in Spanish. And I was like, oh man, these are like really cool ways to tell stories and stuff. So I thought Mm -hmm. I just had like lots of different interests at the time. And in high school, I actually met this one um, teacher. Her name was Maria McCoy and she was actually from El Salvador. And this was like her first time teaching in uh, the United States. And I really, really appreciated her because it was really wonderful to have another role model who was a woman of color Mm -hmm. and who did chemistry. And I just remember like one after like one class or a few, she was like, yeah, you're like really, really great at chemistry. Oh my gosh. Like you just like totally get it. And it was just really cool having another role model say, oh, you can do science. And I, when I really just had like no understanding really of like what like what did it mean to be a scientist and I didn't have any parents or family or um, family friends who even went into academia so for me the whole system in general was just like it was not existent it's kind of like in that video game where like that whole area is just blacked out and you don't really know what's like over there I'm like yeah like that to me just academia and like what made it up was 
non-existent to me like I just had no perception of what that was like um so I actually pursued science a little bit more I took a bunch of extra other science classes in high school I took bio I took physics and I was like I think when I apply to undergrad um I'll give it a shot and see if I like it and I kind of stuck with it um I had super great undergrad mentors and one of um, I ended up majoring in biochemistry at DePaul University and it was really wild I think for me to see this but I was um one of the first like I wasn't I had a small community of other students of color in the major at the time and this was like in my first year of undergrad and as I moved along the major I eventually was the only one left and a lot of this was really because of community like other my other peers found communities in other majors and in other spaces and seeing prospects of having fewer and fewer students to have community with and have support from you know non-white academic professors like I think people were looking for more guidance and support beyond just help from the major and for me when I stuck around I managed to maintain friendships with a lot of those people and other spaces on campus but I found myself wondering and feeling like wow like I really love this field I really love this area but I really wish that there were more supportive spaces for folks in science and STEM at the time. And this was just an undergrad. I had mentored others. I had gotten involved with other science programs um, to support other historically excluded trainees in STEM. So that's kind of a story of how I got into biochemistry too. Like, mm-hmm. But I did lots of great research with the support of mentors that I think that really helped push me in a direction that was more geared toward genetics. Well, I'm so grateful that you shared that story. I think especially the focus on community and how that's been really important from the beginning of your life and supporting your career path. Yeah, like it really can make all the difference. And I feel like for me, I I want to just support people and continue to give back while I can. Like I, I don't know for me right now, like if academia is the end goal or if I'm going to stay in academia. But I think for now, while I'm here, I I want to just help people out and I mean be that person that you know if you're struggling during the pandemic or if you just Mm. honestly want to talk to somebody about frustrations or directions that maybe I took like Mm -hmm. totally open to chatting and I think that that can sometimes be really what people need yeah absolutely um and so now you're in a PhD program so you 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 finished your undergrad degree and you're a PhD candidate in genomic sciences at, at UW. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about what your scientific work involves kind of broadly and then also what your day-to-day might look like? Yeah, so I'll kind of reach back into my undergrad a little bit to kind of get into this. So I, um, when I was an undergrad, I obviously, like, I did not pursue um, a single project or a single area of focus. Like I felt like I studied uh, rare genetic diseases through the human, um, like basically the Rare Genomics Project and the Rare Genomics Institute. So I did that. I worked with some like computational, basically like comp bio algorithms. I was really interested in trying to merge the two of understanding and doing human genetic disease research, but also focusing and learning more computational techniques. I didn't really start a minor in computer science until my junior year of undergrad. And Mm. that ended up being a lot of work that I self-studied for through other online means, because 
I felt like I had just picked it up so late in my academic career, but it was something that I want, like, at least during undergrad that I had wanted to still study it more. Mm -hmm. So I came into grad school with the interest of wanting to do some type of comp bio related research, which is um, very relevant for genomics because there's tons and tons of data (laughs) that that is just hanging around, lying lying around in different areas. And um, yeah, when I came into grad school, I was broadly interested in genomics and comp bio. Like I was open to working with many different faculty members. I thought that a lot of research in um, genome organization, which is what I study, is really interesting because one of the big overarching questions is, okay, so DNA is packaged in the nucleus in cells. How is it packaged the way it is? And why is it organized the way it is? And how do these interactions between chromosomes that really sit in their own spots in the nucleus, how does that change during development, during disease states? Like there's still so little that we really understand about organization and how that affects Mm. health and disease. So I am actually a technology developer that um, makes computational tools to study um, highly repetitive regions that are found in the human genome called satellite DNA. Um, We actually don't know a lot about them, but that's basically kind of what I study in a broad sense. Well, it sounds extremely cool (laughs) and extremely (laughs) complicated. (laughs) It's super complicated, but long story short, I use um, in situ hybridization, which is this technique that lets you fluorescently visualize whatever you're targeting. So this is essentially what I do. I work with uh, microscopy tools, computational tools to try and look at these really repetitive regions. Is there any specific disease area that it's kind of focused on or is it kind of more, you know, more, I I say this with quotes, basic science, um, not necessarily at the point where we can apply it to human disease at this point? That's a good question. So with being able to study repetitive DNA, it's very helpful in that um, these regions, like we really don't know too much about them in the sense of human diseases or human evolution, especially. Mm. So this could be broadly used or applied for diagnostics, like looking at rearrangements that might happen for um, Mm. some of these regions in cancers, which has been reported. So doing like karyotyping diagnostics, looking at um, abnormalities in chromosomes um, Mm -hmm. that have these regions that may have moved or shifted in some way, Mm -hmm. or also just studying generally um, questions like general biological questions that are, you know, related to repetitive DNA. So there's a lot of open openness and open directions that you could um, study these parts of the genome with. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I just love hearing from scientists who are working on, you know, evolving these technologies. I think as joint counselors, we sometimes forget that something like a karyotype is still evolving and the technology behind it is still evolving and there are scientists actively working on it. So it's really great to hear that that's something that you're working on. There is real, really still so much we don't know. And I feel like I am super fortunate to be in this space because I also have like really great mentors, a really, really great team. And um, like, I just think the technology is so cool. Like for me, I didn't really anticipate going into studying microscopy either and using microscopy. But for me, as someone who does a lot of art, I feel like the experiments that I do are making something super cool that's really visual and fun to look at. So 
it's it's been like a really great bridge I think just being able to have all those pieces together in my work I know you mentioned um that you're not sure if you want to stay in academia or kind of what that path might look like for you but um, I'm curious what other paths you you might be interested in or are would be available for you know your background and expertise yeah, um, I think like right now, one thing that I'm interested in is potentially still looking into biotech and industry. Um, mm-hmm. I'm in the process of reaching out to different folks because I know that there are such nuances too in what's a big company look like versus a startup. And I know that there are different styles and ways of leadership that companies function. And for me, I'm very interested still in tool development, software tool development, so I could see myself leveraging a lot of the skills that I'm currently using in my research in many of those areas for those applications and for technology design. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also really see myself shifting gears and working more as like a scientific illustrator, maybe even working through science policy or advocacy, because that's such a huge um, part of my work that I'm also passionate about. Mm-hmm. So I think right now it's safe to say that I am very much undecided, but exploring. And I think the best way that I've been able to do that has just been like connecting through folks on Twitter, trying to meet mm-hmm. up with other people at conferences virtually these days, at least. And um, yeah, like I think those are all of those things are helping me move in the right direction with finding other cool areas to go into. Yeah. Well, you know, Twitter was definitely where I had um, learned about some of your work. I think that was someone had shared, um, and this might be a good kind of segue into some of the, the next questions we had uh, for you. So you had written a nature career column about uh, being trans in STEM. It was titled Breaking the Binary by Coming Out as a Trans Scientist. Um, and so, yeah, it was some someone had shared that on Twitter. I read it and... It, I was just so impressed by by your writing style, but you know the way that you put to words your experience as not only a trans scientist but someone who is a first generation student, a person of color, disabled, all of these intersecting identities. Um, and I imagine that that speaking to this experience was an emotional experience for you. What what was it like to write that? And especially when it was going to be for such a public medium, you know, you, you wrote it for nature, which is kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for reading it. It's It was something that um, really had kind of been on my mind since my first year of grad school. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was a piece that was in the works for a while. Like one thing that I had noticed when I had started grad school was I was journaling a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. I was writing a lot. And I think that was helping me process what starting grad school was like, how it felt moving from California to Washington, um, starting this program that I was somewhat familiar with because I did a summer internship here prior to joining um, Genome Sciences. But there was a lot of um, stress that I had expected from grad school that I had, you know, in undergrad connected with mentors who shared some of their own experiences of deadlines, looking out for yourself, making sure that you're advocating for your own space. So I think like at the base level to a degree, when I was coming in, I was aware of what stressors I would experience. Mm. But I think for me, I didn't anticipate that a lot of the changes in the work that I would be doing in science and in STEM in particular, at least during my grad career, would continue in this line of advocacy. So for me, 
writing and reflecting was a very powerful way for me to process and find space and honestly take steps back from the day-to-day work and struggles that I was experiencing in grad school when I had started. So I wanted to contextualize this piece with more of my intersecting identities because I feel like typically when a lot of these pieces are written, they're just focused on, you know, either just trans identity, just queer identity. But it I was one thing that I was really worried about was actually merging everything into one piece because, you know, when you're presented with a 900 word cap limit it's which you know it's totally not nature's fault it's just their guidelines because not every column can be super long but I was thinking how in the world could I do any of this justice in 900 words yeah um so for me I wanted to share at least what was I thought most relevant to sharing my story at the time and there's still areas of the story that I do want to expand on through like my own personal projects and other narratives that I'm happy to share a little bit later. But yeah, um, this was a very difficult piece to write, I think, but I was super, super um, thankful and happy for a lot of the support that I had from my immediate peers and friends um, who were willing to read drafts, my advisors who, when I said, hey, I I don't know, I kind of want to share a story and share some stories. Would you be supportive of that? And they were both beyond incredibly helpful red drafts and we're like yeah just let us know what we can do and I think that was really one of the best pushes that I was able to get mm-hmm. yeah I imagine that you know, fitting that into to 900 words is just an incredible incredible challenge do how did you kind of decide on what pieces to bring into this piece and what to leave out for other projects that you, you just mentioned Right. So the writing process for this was really difficult because I felt like my timeline was um, I had contacted the editor sometime in December of last year, like it was towards the end of the year. And I was thinking, okay, so over the winter break, I'm not going to write anything, but I'm just going to take some time to maybe write like a simple paragraph outline of what I think this is going to pan out to. And I took January to sit down and start writing like a first draft. Mm. And I was thinking, wow, like the number of times I've gone back and deleted this whole paragraph or just rewritten this whole paragraph. And I moved this over here and moved this other paragraph to the front. So like I felt like once I had a, a draft and then I sent it to my editor, um, super awesome, super helpful, but so much changed. And I think so much continued to change during the editing process that mm-hmm. the first paper that I had submitted was was very, very different from what the finished product looked like. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sharing this just because I know that for some people, the writing process can be very discouraging when it feels like you're into X round of editing and you're just, does this stop? Is this good? Is this back and forth going to stop? But I feel that on a deep level. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, this this will pass. It will be okay. Um, But for me, it was, um, I think when I was organizing my thoughts, I wanted to try and share as much of a simple, cohesive story as possible. One thing that was really important to me was sharing how I did come out to my whole department because that was a really, really big step. I think when I came back to genome sciences, I was familiar with some people already, but there were tons and tons of new faces. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to give these introductions to the entire department that said, you know, where are you from? 
what are you interested in? What's your name? All that stuff. And when it was my turn to go, it was, it's like an open forum. So pretty much everyone was sitting in, as audience members in the department and all the first year students were like on the stage. And when it was my turn to go up, I was thinking, okay, so I cannot share my pronouns and which is a totally valid thing if I want to just mm-hmm. reach out to people one-on-one and share my pronouns or I can do this all at once right here right now and maybe you know some people will probably ask me questions and maybe miss here but at the same time I just really want to get this off my chest so that was how I introduced myself as Robin and that was pretty much the first time that I had publicly called myself Robin um, because I was still I still hadn't gone through my legal name change at the time so I was I had navigated that during my first year of grad school too Wow. Yeah. That's a lot Um, to navigate during your first year. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot to navigate. So for me, I wanted to start with that story to kind of set the tone for this was a different way to kind of start grad school and to go about introductions. But for me, that introduction led to a lot of wonderful surprises, a lot of support. But at the same time, there there were some drawbacks to sharing my identity and being open um, in ways. Yeah, in, in in the article, you, you kind of discussed that a little bit, like the empowerment of that experience, doing that so publicly and, you know, getting it off your chest in that way. But you also were pretty transparent of some of the negative experiences. Um, I, one piece that stuck out to me was you were told to tolerate sexism, which just kind of blew me away, but also wasn't surprising at the same time. And then especially you spoke about you know, kind of being called upon, and I've, I've heard that from num- a, a number of people of color, or marginalized identities to really be that DEI expert, I think, especially in this last year, when mm-hmm. academia and all professional settings are really trying to play catch up with all of their failings in the past. I- I'm wondering if you could speak to those experiences a little bit more and what that's been like for you, especially over the last year. Yeah, like, I think for me, um, speaking up was a very, very difficult thing to do because another piece of language that I actually didn't include in this um, paper was that when I did raise concerns about the program and program logistics, one thing that I was told was that, you know, all of the courses that we're offering in the program are supposed to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. And I sat with that for a, for a while because I was thinking, what playing field is there to level though like Mm. many of my peers have family in academia or they've had access to college courses when they were in undergrad or grad school courses or mentors who really helped them through their essays and projects completely to really get to this point and for me I didn't have as many of those resources or Mm. at least have family at the minimum in academia so I was when I sat there I was thinking what we're not leveling anything. Like we're all taking the same class, sure, but there are just so many differences that are fail failing to be acknowledged mm-hmm. when we're all starting grad school and let alone creating cohesive communities. Like that wasn't really happening. So paired with that, um, I felt in a lot of ways that when I did speak up, I was asked to call and draw upon a lot of my experiences as someone with many intersecting marginalized identities. And 
I didn't, I also didn't want that to define my experience too. Like I think as someone who wanted to, you know, attend genome sciences to do science and be a scientist, it just felt wild to have to feel like I was being burdened in many ways to not only share my story, but also use my story to help leverage why change should be happening. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of spaces that exist in academia, and unfortunately, they can be DEI committees at some institutions that really burden Black and Indigenous scholars with not only their time, but also feeling like they're hitting into the struggle of having to not only educate this entire committee, but this committee is failing to do and enact institutional change and action that does directly benefit communities that are the most marginalized in academia. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are areas that I think I still struggle with, especially that I see from afar. And that has shifted and changed why a lot of the work that I do is more community-centered, mentorship-centered, because I I want to be able to work on projects that are I'm I'm not only motivated to personally do but are by and for communities that will uplift and maybe create healing spaces instead that aren't a burden or that aren't taxing because I think the whole point of making um, a lot of these efforts at least in my opinion is to create community building and address needs within our communities mm-hmm. that just haven't been talked about by general white academia. Yeah, I feel like the, I mean, the culture of white academia, it's, I know that there's conversations about it changing, but it does seem to be, you know, slow because there's that, may I say, capitalist drive to be productive and, and do all of these things. But as you said, like for folks of marginalized identities, like that might not be the the most important thing. It's It might be building community so that those things can happen, but you know, having that support is so important in order to actually be productive in the way you want to be productive. <laughs> and in the article, you had you had said kind of along this these lines. Um, you said, "I have I have some advice. Pursue goals that motivate you and provide you with space to practice self care. It's crucial to prioritize your needs and invest in relationships, projects, and hobbies that make you embrace your whole self as a scientist." And I just I absolutely loved that quote. We were wondering, how do you practice this other than, you know, building community? And and we'll talk about some of the projects that you've gotten involved with, but how do you practice this kind of just daily in your own life? Yeah, like daily in my own life, I feel like this area, like this quote has been tested in different ways, like pandemic and off pandemic, because I think that also looked different for a lot of people. It certainly looked different for me. Um when the pandemic wasn't going on and I was able to have a little bit more space between, I think, work and home, which I think is the main struggle that I'll share Mm. is, um, you know, I'd hang out with friends. I'd try to go to breweries or just different areas in Seattle to explore, go on hikes, um, spend time outside on weekends, at least in the spring and summer, because that's when Seattle is really like the most beautiful. Um, And just, I think for me, making connections and frequent Zoom calls like from home or from different family members in Colombia or from different people that I met in my undergrad just to catch up. I think keeping those connections for me, even when the pandemic wasn't happening, were still super important to me. Now during the pandemic, it's a little bit more tricky because I like my living room and my desktop is essentially 
where my work setup is. So it is very difficult. What I ended up doing actually was trying to take advantage of like Google calendars to block out what a nine to five would look like. But that does change for me because I also have um, an autoimmune disorder that's like lupus-like. So a lot of the symptoms that I experience are like joint pain and kind of chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. So setting up a nine to five at a desk also isn't sometimes the most practical for me, especially if I'm flaring up. So I am consistently trying to be mindful about doing what I can genuinely. And that means blocking out the evening for doing relaxing activities or like cooking or calling mm-hmm. calling friends or trying to catch up on like an art project or a writing project, like doing something that really, really motivates me that's mm-hmm. not in science. And even if that means if I'm having a flare up day or a chronic pain day, you know what, I'm going to take this day off and I'm honestly going to make some fun comfort food or <laughs> do something else fun. Maybe go on a gentle walk, anything like that. Absolutely. Can you talk more about what it was like to receive that diagnosis of an autoimmune disorder during the pandemic? Um, because it sounds like, you know, during this time, you really had to take a step back and think about um, your health and your own body. So can you tell us more about receiving that diagnosis and how you've adapted uh, to this new diagnosis during the pandemic? Yeah, like it's, Wow, I think when this went down, um, I started getting sick in November of 2019 uh, was when a lot of lung issues actually started up for me. And Mm -hmm. I was very concerned at the time because I was traveling to conferences. This was pre-pandemic. And I was thinking, okay, like I trying to get healthcare and stuff for this. But once the pandemic started, which really hit, you know, February, March of 2020, I was caught in this loop of trying to see providers for my needs but a lot of those providers were unavailable because at the time a lot of medical care was just centered on covid Mm -hmm. so it was very hard to get to appointments i was put on wait lists and during those times i was you know my health was being exacerbated not just by my own the flare-ups and what i was dealing with but the stress of grad school so trying to balance and navigate that during a pandemic while transitioning to virtual life was an enormous challenge that I, I, you know, I'm still like to sometimes struggling with, but it's, it's something that is ongoing, but it has gotten a lot better. Um, I did my qualifying exams in June of 2020 and I passed them when I was still seeking treatment and still undergoing a diagnosis. So that was that was also a wild experience of, mm. wow, like uh, this is not the grad school experience at all that anyone thinks of, I think. And that's kind of what threw me in for a loop. But at the same time, I'm keeping track of all of the progress too and all of the highs among among this. But I would say that that brought me back into my own body in the sense that I wanted to make sure that I was prioritizing space for myself. Like I remember studying one day after the general exam and I was thinking, you know what, whatever happens, happens. Genuinely, I need to take care of myself and my body first. I feel like more than anything, what's happening in the world is for me, I want to reiterate that I want to make sure that even after this pandemic, that I am prioritizing 
making space for myself and making sure that I'm going to be healthy. And for me, that's, that's productive. Spending time with friends and family and community, that's productive to me. So mm-hmm. I think that those values really came through for me. And I just wanted to make sure that even regardless of what happened with the pandemic, that I would still be able to keep those connections and stay true to myself. Did you feel supported by your advisors and other folks in your department when you told them about your diagnosis? Yeah, you know, I I am extremely fortunate and that I have felt really nothing but support mm-hmm. since um, getting this diagnosis. And for me, it's that has made a huge, huge difference as well in the way that I practice um, being receptive and being a receptive advocate as well, because more than anything, folks need time and folks need space. And um, in this case, for me, that's what I needed. I needed time from work and I needed space from work to make sure that I was going to have some ways to focus on my health first before getting back into my science. So after my general exam, I felt like from June to August, I took a complete break. Pretty much Mm -hmm. I didn't even open up my computer. I wasn't doing anything in July, really, of last year. And I just had time to be with family and actually just kind of like sit back, reflect and try to come up with goals for myself for health stuff, Mm -hmm. navigating doctors, navigating insurance, which is like always super gross, but (laughs) it's like, unfortunately, a part of the process. And um, I also have met and have a great mentor who was also dealing with a very chronic illness at the same time. So it was great to be able to connect with them and talk to them and feel like I also had someone to um, to bounce ideas off of or just talk to about this because it's like a totally different stress. Mm-hmm. My advisors were also nothing but supportive when this went down and they were just like, wow, this is like, first of all, you know, like, so sorry. But second of all, this is also the worst timing. Take the time you need mm-hmm. to get the health care and help to try to get back up to speed too as much as you can. But for me, like, I... Um, basically we just had really transparent conversations about what I was doing or how I was feeling. Like if it was a chronic pain day for me, I would honestly let them know that and say that, you know, I'm probably going to be like walking around a little bit, doing a little more stretches. So if I'm moving slowly over the next couple days, disclaimer, but yeah, like so far it really hasn't been a problem. And I think for me, sure it has shifted my work hours a little bit some, but not so much. And you know, I'm just trying to balance that and keep an eye on Mm -hmm. appointments, making sure that I'm getting exercise and stuff too. And Mm -hmm. I think more and more though, it's just helped me focus and make a broader schedule that says, this is very flexible. This is pending to change. And I'm, I'm learning to be okay with shifting Mm -hmm. with that too. Mm -hmm. That's something that I've actually learned from some of my other uh, friends in PhD programs is even though they are so rigorous and so stressful in so many ways, um, I am learning from from those folks that there is kind of a level of flexibility. Like, you know, you can kind of make your own schedule in some ways. Obviously, you need to meet your own goals. But at the same time, it does kind of push that timeline a little bit longer in some senses. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know if that's been the case for you. Yeah, like I think with I think everything did slow down when the pandemic started for me anyway. And I was just at the end of my exam, I think I I did kind of hit a wall where I was kind of burned out, Mm -hmm. really, I think from everything I was just like, well, 
I'm happy I'm taking July off because I just need need some general space from science, from all of it. And um, that was really crucial for me for, I think, for recentering and and reevaluating that, you know, maybe trying to set a nine to five work schedule on Google Calendar really isn't going to work for you. And maybe mm-hmm. what you do need is just more space and more um, more time to see what your body feels like in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that level of trying to stay in the present has been really, really helpful for me, at least for navigating the past couple of months of pandemic stuff and prepping for talks. Because I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to make the smallest checklist I need to maybe do today. And if that's, <laughs> I'm going to answer three or four emails today. I've made it <laughs> like ah, sometimes it's that. that like I, I just I yeah like I try not to overload these days really I'm gonna like write that in my planner and say Robin told me to do this <laughs> yeah because it's so yeah. it's so hard especially when you know our days now are just from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed and it's so easy to just try and pack as many things as possible um into that time but it's yeah, it's really important. I agree to just say, I'm not going to, you know, overcommit or take on too much. And this is what success looks like for me today. Yeah. And I think, you know, being transparent about my goals, I'm just like, I'm going to get through these emails. Maybe I'll make a graph today. Like, <laughs> try to, I'm going to try to do the best I can. And, and it works out. It really does. Yeah. And, and the, outcome is even better in that case because you're actually able to do it in the thoughtful way that you want to do it Mm -hmm. rather than feeling rushed and you know all of those things I that's definitely something that I've been trying to work on um very recently I feel like the for the majority of the pandemic I did not take on that mentality and spent a lot of time really like being angry with myself for not meeting those goals. And I think a lot of us are at this point, you know, it's more than a year in now, we really do need to like step back and and do what is possible, not like what we think is possible. Going back to your mission, you've talked a little bit about advocacy, building community within STEM, but also outside of STEM. Can you tell us more about some of the various efforts, either in and out of STEM, that you are working on to make this mission a reality? Yeah. um, So for me, I one big project that I've been leading and I co-founded with others in the Department of Genome Sciences was the Genome Sciences Association for the Inclusion of Marginalized Students. It's um, we're a newer student group that was founded in 2019 in genome sciences. And we really did this because of this big need for community and for community particularly centered around our diverse lived experiences of folks who have been um, marginalized in the sciences. And the our main push for this was kind of, you know, stemming back from this conversation that I had earlier of this idea of falsely leveling a playing field, of um, research supporting and showing that, you know, we each, each person would benefit highly from having mentors who understand Um, the lived experiences of their trainees and their mentees. We wanted to create a community that was aware and receptive to our struggles in STEM. And that meant that in many cases, sometimes being in community and having community in one another and being able to reach out to other 
researchers and professionals within and beyond our institution. Like that for us were major goals that we were looking to change and have in the department that really weren't um, super existent or present. So when we crafted these things, we really started with events that were more community centered and more centered on like first years, especially who were transitioning into grad into the grad program and trying to get a sense of get bearings of like, what labs am I going to join? What are we going to do? So we did events that were like Q&As with let's have pizza and mm-hmm. let's try to do a picnic or some type of activity that's like a little bit more chill. And having a community events that would bring others in the department together um, just to hang out. And more recently in this past year, we were awarded a grant to bring um, researchers from not just UW, but outside of UW to talk about their research. And we've had folks come from American history department, social science departments and genetics and talk about their really amazing work. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, we actually it would be very hard to connect with these people just simply because of just the distance mm. and making those connections happen. But luckily with Zoom, that having, I feel like it's actually been pretty easy to organize a lot of virtual events, but we try to be mindful in that we don't want to also overwhelm and overload anyone because burnout and fatigue is so, so real. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like having the speaker series and we're planning on doing some more upcoming workshops on professional development, like um, building an e-portfolio online or um, storytelling and art stuff. So yeah, so we're doing lots of work that our community wants and is by and for communities in genome sciences. And we're also hoping to do some more outreach projects around Seattle and in collaboration with other groups on campus. So it's been a really wonderful, vibrant community to be a part of. And um, I'm hoping that we'll continue to grow and continue to be able to do even bigger projects in the future. Outside of STEM, I think you had mentioned to us before that you're um, getting involved more with like mutual aid and other advocacy outside of the, the STEM fields. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, so a lot of the projects that I have primarily been interested in or been working with is um, like primarily related to the queer community in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I've i been supporting and helping like some mutual aids through the Ingersoll Gender Center, which is um, an organization here in Seattle that actually helped me um, pay for my name change when I was uh, oh, wow. coming to Seattle. Yeah. So they have this really great program for like trans community members where if you're low income, um, you can qualify for like certain fee waivers and like help with what does the process look like for changing your name? And they were incredibly helpful for me. And they really helped me with a lot of those forms for getting like my name changed because it's also a pretty expensive process. And doing mm-hmm. that in grad school was like not going to be easy for me in my first year. So they were super helpful and I am hoping to get some more time to volunteer with them and connect with their community members. Um, The Lambert House in Seattle also does really great help for queer youth in particular. Um, And they're a super great community space and they like, yeah, they do lots of really amazing work. Um, There's another art collective that I'm hoping to boost here called, um, yeah, um, basically Yahout. And they're an indigenous art collective here in Seattle, and they do really, really cool programming as well. So there's like lots of really cool community centers here that um, have been really important. And I'm hoping that um, 
after the pandemic, it'll be great to actually be in person and have more community that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of folks I know, even m- myself included, who have come out in some way during the pandemic. And that's something that I've thought actually a lot about more recently, because doing that during the pandemic has been pretty difficult because those spaces where you do find community or look to to find community right now are online where they would be in person. And it's definitely not the same. But at the same time, going back to what we were saying about being disabled, we're realizing ways where we can increase accessibility to provide more community spaces for disabled folks. So, and, and that's a great thing. So I think this dichotomy is really challenging, but at the same time, really great because we are learning how to build community in new, more accessible ways, which I think is really promising for the future. Right. Like in some ways, like it, it could be easier, but I think that is very, very dependent on the topic. And yeah. I know that it's pretty easy to find a, like a like a virtual meetup for reading groups or writers groups. Like I've gone to some of those, but totally different, right? From yeah. finding community, like queer community or trans community like that is those connections like just feel the best in person. And I yeah, think exactly. like, I, you know, going along the lines of accessibility, like you were talking about, that's something that I've been thinking about and reflecting a lot, like on a lot these days, which is, I I hope a lot of these things stay because for me having the ability to be flexible um, and have these accommodations during the pandemic has been so important for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Just being able to give myself that time and space from work where I can't imagine having a flare up in the sense of like, wow, my joints feel like trash today. This is not it at work. Like that would be super hard. you know, some of these things with accessibility, I mean, especially like, you know, these measures were always possible. And I hope that more people are are very empathetic in academia to this, because this is so important for so many folks. And for community building, I mean, I, that's another thing. I'm like, I hope a lot of these initiatives, to a degree that center community by and for folks is going to stick around and maybe even come back even stronger after the pandemic, because I think a lot of us really do need those connections, right? Yeah, we've been missing them for sure. Um, And then, you know, just shifting gears uh, to something you you briefly touched on, I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit more about the art that you do um, and kind of what inspires you to make all different kinds of artwork. Yeah, um, for me, I guess I can kind of reach back to my undergrad for this too, but like, you know, I've, I've been around art and like creative works, I think for like my whole life. I told you that my dad kind of had some comic books from Mexico and that was kind of like my first big exposure to like, oh man, like Marvel and comic books are actually really cool. I like Mm -hmm. this form of storytelling and I was actually going to major in studio art in undergrad, but in having to navigate balancing biochem lab hours and art hours it was going to be way too much for me it's super overwhelming so I ended up sticking with biochem but I was thinking okay is art going to be more of a hobby um it might be since I'm not getting like I guess training in it but that was absolutely not true like I felt like I was able to keep up my art in little ways through lab notebooks science presentations and today I feel like it's become such an integrated part of the way I 
tell my science and share my research that mm. I'm actually really, really happy that it didn't get, that I didn't really sideline it as much as I thought it would, which has been super important to me. So my illustration style has shifted in a lot of different ways. Like I do scientific illustration through for presentations. Um, I also enjoy making landscapes. I do lots of different um crafts like essentially through like art like as a medium so I'm hoping to get more into graphic novel type illustration as well as comic book illustration that's something that Mm. I have some creative works around that and I've been mainly um mainly using my iPad I do have Adobe Illustrator but I have Procreate on my iPad which has been a super powerful tool for me no I I just love that because I think there's so much that scientists can learn from artists and if you can essentially do both you're just an incredible scientific communicator so I you know I I just I love hearing your story about how you know the art that you were inspired by as a kid is really you know helping you in your career even can you tell us how people can find your art and you know if they want to collaborate or you know commission you for any of your work yeah, totally. So my all of my work basically can be found on my website, um, robinaguilar.com. Um, and I'm planning on doing a little bit of some restructuring on my website. So I'm hoping to also have a bigger section for, you know, contact me for commissions, as well as um, if you want to order some prints, here's another place that you can go um, reach out. Um, for me, though, I am super, super excited about some upcoming projects that I have for the community. I'm hoping on actually creating a zine for trans scientists, and I'm hoping that we can maybe make like a really rad community collective of just, hey, if you have any poetry, short stories, art pieces, collages, photos of you cooking or doing something you enjoy and you want to submit to a zine, let's have a community space and hang out and make something together. So that's kind of a one of my later projects that I'm planning on working on over the next couple of months. And I'm hoping to get and recruit some folks for that. Cause I think it's going to be great. That is so cool. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. Well, this has just been so fun and so powerful to learn about what inspires you and what's coming down the pipeline to kind of wrap up this portion before we go to the rapid fire round. <laughs> what would you say you are most proud of in your career so far and what excites you most about your past and about your future you know I think what I am most proud of is being able to navigate academia in the way that has allowed me to stay in the present in the sense that I've been able to reflect though but I've been able to reflect and learn from the past and say okay, I am now, I think, starting to enter the phase of my career where I'm wanting to like stories, you know, continue to build community collectives, because those are all things that have remained important to me, even despite having to navigate the many challenges in grad school. So I feel like being able to write that careers article. And um, one thing that I'm even doing is writing a series that has helped me navigate grad school and other aspects of grad school. So for example, like, I made a guide, I think, a couple months ago on how do you study for your qualifying exams or your general exams? And I mainly did that just because I actually had friends from other institutions who were like, how do you do this? How did you do this during a pandemic? So I wrote this little Medium article for them and I decided to share it publicly, but I have gotten some really meaningful messages from mentees and folks who were like, wow, this is 
actually incredibly helpful. I had no idea how I was going to structure my studying or organizing my exam. So for me, making those personal projects of reflection and writing and getting more of my writing out there, I feel like is something that I'm incredibly proud of because I'm starting to share and unpack parts of my story that hopefully can help others in science, like just beyond my research. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. I love it. If you are tuning into the podcast, this is the spot where we typically would have a sponsor, um, which we have not at the moment. So if you are interested in sponsoring our podcast, we would be very grateful. We'll make sure that those proceeds go towards um, organizations that are supporting women, femmes, and non-binary folks in science. All right. So should we? I think we should do it. Yay. Deanna will kick it off. Okay, so you don't have to think too long about the response. Okay, so the first one, what is something that you'd still like to learn or a skill that you're hoping to develop? Ooh, um, let's see. I would say something that I'm hoping to develop in the future is, honestly, I am trying to learn how to put together illustrations, like in terms of like making cohesive comic book panels, because one project, an idea that I've had for a while is to kind of make some of my stories more into like graphic novels that are super short or quick little comic books. So I'm actually learning that. I'm trying to figure out if I need to like get into Skillshare or whatever, or like take a short class somewhere. But that's something that I'm hoping to kind of develop a little bit more. Big party or small gathering? Which do you prefer? If it's cold and rainy out, potentially big gathering. Um, If it's a nice, beautiful summer day in Seattle, small gathering outside. A picnic, maybe. (laughs) Like it. What is the most significant piece of advice that you've received or a mantra that you live by? I would say one of the most important mantras that I've been thinking about these days is turn it in as it is. You're fine. <laughs> don't over don't overthink it. If you I think you've put in enough effort or work on this just to call it a day or call it an evening on or working on whatever. Do what you can. You're going to be okay. Take some space from it if you need it. <laughs> amazing I feel like every grad student needs to hear that but also everyone yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um all right what is your favorite dessert tiramisu mm. oh me too yes what is your favorite emoji hmm what is my favorite emoji I've been using the sunflower one a lot lately and I think it's just been reflective of the good weather potentially the sunflower one <laughs> that's a good one it's underrated <laughs> Probably because I've been gardening a lot lately, honestly. Ooh, what are you gardening? <laughs> Sorry, this is supposed to be rapid fire, so been, but I, I always <laughs> No worries. <laughs> so I have a bunch of plants in my apartment. It's really funny, but I was wanting to start an herb garden. So I have like cilantro, oregano, rosemary, mint, and I also make cocktails. So I was like, I also need herbs. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, what are you most grateful for these days? What am I most grateful for these days? Hmm. I would say sometimes the midday Zoom lunch call with a friend. Like I that's something that being able to just have community and again being around folks when I'm not able to and have that company has been super mm-hmm. nice lately. Um also always incredibly grateful for like the constant support from my partner, my family. Um, but sometimes, yeah, just breaking things up with more time to just chat or like pull up a friend, like we're going to be accountability buddies and work and I'll have you in the Zoom corner and we'll like talk occasionally has been honestly super wonderful for me lately. That's awesome. 
Um, and then the last question we have, what is something that people often get wrong about you? Hmm. What is something that people often get wrong about me? Okay. I would say that one thing, actually, this is related to science, is that one of the first compliments or things that I normally hear after a scientific presentation is that, oh my gosh, this is, you're such an artist. Like, this, these photos and illustrations are super pretty that you put in your presentations. How do you do it? And I'm hoping maybe that a little bit more in the future, I can get that shift to say, oh my gosh, you're a really great creative scientist. Because Mm. I think more than anything, I want to also be able to share and highlight Mm -hmm. my work in research. And sometimes it's kind of a bummer that my work in illustration overshadows my work in science, when in reality, I see them as two skills that I'm continuing to learn in parallel. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great point. I feel like it's so easy sometimes in science to see like a a quality visual and just think it's like pretty, but it's actually such an integral piece of the whole scientific communication process. So that that's really important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) We did. Um, so before we end, we always, you did kind of allude to these um, earlier when we were talking about mutual aid, but just to give you the opportunity to highlight them again, what are some, you know, causes or pieces of legislation or anything, you know, charity that you would like to promote as part of as part of this episode? Yeah. Um, so I would say, again, locally in Seattle, there's um, Yahoot, and I think I can send the spelling and everything for all of these um for all of these mutual aids in seattle they're an art collective for indigenous folks the lambert house in seattle i would also say um ingersoll gender center um el centro de la raza is a really important group um here in seattle for folks um particularly in different um latino communities um let me see what else i would say that for folks who want to support um black lives matter particularly in stem spaces um there are tons of black and x groups for different many like stem fields so i would say that there some of them do support um financial like Mm -hmm. funds as well as um you know being requested for helping like volunteer and stuff so i would highly amplify their work as well and yeah, there are tons of mutual aids, but yeah, I would say lately as well, El Centro de la Raza has been doing lots of really incredible work for um, navigating COVID for families in South Seattle mm-hmm. as well. So uh, I will totally provide links and stuff to that um, to you. Yay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Well, this has been so fun. I'm so glad that we reached out and connected via Twitter and here we are. So Thank you so much for sharing your story and yeah, cheers. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> if you would like to nominate someone to be on our podcast, please reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram at DNA or our website, roseandna.com. And in the meantime, be well, be empowered, and cheers. cheers.